Hey, welcome to this week's Driven Celebrities podcast, the podcasted version of the radio show Driven that airs over the weekend on talk radio. And we do an extended version, uh, especially with a chosen celebrity from each week. It's a celebrity chat show that tries to get under the skin of celebrities and find out what they're all about. Three really cool guests for you this week. The glorious Melanie Sykes, who you'll probably be able to tell I've had a crush on for about three decades. But, you know, I try to hide it fail. Then the amazing Daniel Mays. Danny Mays is such an incredible actor. I mean, he's been in some amazing movies like the 1917 and Tintin, worked with, you know, Spielberg and Sam Mendes and all the greats. He's absolutely phenomenal. Plus, of course, he's in brilliant TV such as Line of Duty and the new drama Des, where he lines up alongside David Tennant. And I'm in that too. <laughs> Blink and you miss me, but I'm in all three episodes of Des, uh, which is on ITV, and it's really, really strong drama. It's the kind of real-life um, recounting of uh, of Dennis Nielsen, the serial killer. And, um, yeah, it's it's really powerful stuff. And me being in it is completely random. I'm not an actor. I don't act. But I got asked to be in this tiny, tiny part and they ended up giving me more lines than I was expecting. So really, really chuffed to bits. And um, yeah, you should check it out. Not because I'm in it, but because it's brilliant. Anyway, lovely chat with Danny Mace. He's got some amazing anecdotes and he is our long guest for today. So whilst on the radio, I think they had about 15 minutes of him. We've got nearly half an hour of uh, of his anecdotes and stories and maybe even 35 minutes. It's great, though. He's such a good guy. So interesting to listen to. And uh, I think you really enjoy him. And then my third guest is Ben Fogel, everybody's favourite adventurer. Simple as that. Love it. Listen, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Driven Celebrity Podcast. If you're a weekly listener, hey, you're the best. If you're new, thank you. Why don't you check out some of our back catalogue as well because we've spoken to so many cool people and we've got loads more um, that we've lined up to chat to over the next few weeks. So really appreciate your company. If you could spread the love a little bit, share it around, give us a review, nice one ideally, and chuck five stars in our direction, that'd be great. That's your podcast begging bowl bit done, but we really do appreciate feedback and comments and warmth from the listener because it's... Well, because you guys are just great. So thank you. Anyway, let's dive in, shall we? Here's the show. Driven with Andy J on Talk Radio in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. So let's chat to my first guest, shall we? And I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to her. She is someone who has long been on my fantasy dinner party list. I don't know if you do those at home, but I'm kind of obsessed with them. Like, which celebrities would you love to have a dinner party with? Well, my next guest has been on my list for about two decades. It's the glorious Melanie Sykes. How are you doing, Mel? <laughs> I'm fine. That's nice of you. Thanks. Do you, am, am I alone in doing that? Have I, is what I've said just really weird, or do you do that as well? Well, I don't think it's weird. I mean, I, I don't personally do it. I mean, obviously, you get asked sometimes for magazines and stuff, and I have to really think about it, whereas, obviously, clearly, you've already thought about it, All and you time. know. All the time. It's one of those <laughs> things. I just, I just kind of, I often think, who would be really great company? And then I think about the kind of blends and the chemistry between people, and I'm, yeah, so I have a constant list. And do, you, do you host dinner parties? Are you a good dinner party host? I I'm think I'm what you describe as distinctly average. I'm terrible at the cooking. And the catering side of things. Okay. But I'm pretty good at making sure that everybody has a good time. Oh, well, that's very important. I'm kind of the bez of dinner parties. The bez? Yeah, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Although without... I see, I get it. You don't have to explain, I get it. Without the chemicals, more the maracas than the chemicals, if that makes sense. (laughs) I'm there for the vibes. (laughs) 
gone down a very strange tangent. <laughs> I wasn't expecting this. Uh, Melody, uh, you, there's so much we could discuss, but, you know, our show is called Driven. And one of the things that we don't really do is talk about driving. But that's miraculously what we're going to be chatting about with you, which I think is great. <laughs> Yes, exactly. No, I, I'm I'm working with Co-op at the moment, the insurance company. I've done a study on young drivers, the young drivers that have got the black boxes in their cars. Yeah. And so they have to adhere to the rules of the road. And it, they're experiencing a lot of aggression from um, the more mature drivers on the road, the ones who've got more experience, to basically hurry up. So they're feeling under pressure when they're on the road. They're being beeped at. They're being tailgated. And it's making them feel extremely nervous and it's also kind of making them want to, to, to go faster to even just get out of the way. So um, Co-op have come up with this idea of having a thing called a T-plate, which goes on the back of the car to show other drivers that this is why this car is driving to the rules, as we all should be, mm. um, and, and basically to, to back up a little bit. It's just like a, another level just to say, you know, this is why I, I'm driving this way, so please kind of leave me alone a bit. It sounds like and not, the, not only yeah, a good and the idea, reason it's quite sense, personal. Well, it, it is, and I think that sometimes we need to know who the driver is in front. You shouldn't be doing all of those things. And I've got an 18-year-old an boy that's going to be learning to drive this year, later on this year. And for me, the idea that other people will know when he's passed that he's in these first few years of it, uh, you know, to, to just give him some space it, as a parent that feels a bit soothing because it's obviously a, a big scary thing when your children go off and start driving yeah absolutely I mean I mean how does that feel are you a bit sort of because I've got two boys and and just the idea of them ever leaving the house or having their own lives absolutely <laughs> terrifies me oh no I, I'm pretty good like that like Roman's going to uni next month and you know, at one point there was talk that maybe he would stay at home and have to do everything online. And he wanted to go, and I was absolutely for it. I w I'm excited for him to start his life. Um, and he's in no danger. Obviously, getting in a car is, is a slightly different thing. Yeah. But, yeah, no, I'm, I'm um, you know, I'm excited for him to start his life. What's he going to hang around with me for for the next few years? You know, why is he, <laughs> you know, I want him and positively encourage him to go and have a life. You know, you've you've totally got the right attitude. I'm, I'm kind of the polar opposite. I'm trying to save all the money I can so that when my lads are potentially of the age where they'd want to leave, I want to kind of turn my house into anything they could ever want. You know, there's a cinema room, there's a bar, there's a, you know, nightclub, whatever. Whatever, it's here. You don't need to leave. I'm not ready yet. Oh, um, my goodness me. <laughs> I think you might need to get some therapy, darling. Well, I okay. think so. <laughs> I've got a few years to get myself ready. But, yeah, therapy's never a terrible okay, idea. Okay, good. You, you might... You, you might morph into the idea of it, so that's fine. <laughs> well, I'm assuming you kind of do... Because mine are very little. So I'm assuming you do you do kind of... It just sort of happens when they get a bit Oh, older. well, yes. I think you're worrying unnecessarily, darling. That's all right. That's all right. So let's talk about your relationship with the road mail. I don't know if you've had this... Con I'm imagining you've spoken to a few people today about, about this really good study. And, and I think that the kind of the sound of the tea plate sounds great, actually. And, and certainly something that if, if you're kind of... If you're driving aggressively behind someone, just don't do it. It's just a sort of standard fare, isn't it? But what sort of a well, drive... Well, across, across the board, really. Yeah, I think yeah. you should back off a bit. Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I get frustrated in my car and, you know, I, I live in London, so it's, you know, it's bumper to bumper all the time. And if you're you're running late for something, you know, we're all human. But I 
I'm, I'm not a toxic human, so I wouldn't sort of try and overtake when it was dangerous. I wouldn't try and force somebody out of a junction when they're not ready to go. I mean, I'm not, but yeah, I mean, I get frustrated in the car for sure. Um, and I think any age group does it. But, you know, when you've got a, a, a group of, uh, an age group specifically saying, look, you know, it's horrible and it's making me nervous, then it's got to be looked at. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to stick to the rules, obviously. And sometimes I've been fine for not, but that's just just me being human. Yeah, that, that's part and parcel of, of having been on the road for a while. You know, everyone gets into trouble sometimes, yeah. don't we? I mean, it's, but yes, you're yeah, absolutely right. Exactly. You, you've got to be as careful as you can. I mean, Mel, you're, you're famous for so many things, but one of the things I think that, that is kind of very apparent about you of, of recent times is your sort of incredible approach to life, your clean living, your yoga, your meditation, and so on. Has that changed your... I don't even know why I'm going down this driving thing now, but we're just kind of in there, so I'm going to keep going with it. <laughs> Has that changed your kind of Go. approach behind the wheel? You know, are you like when you get stuck in traffic, do you kind of bang out a mantra and things are all yeah, right? Yeah, I, I try. I, I mean, yeah, there's definitely elements of meditation that you can bring into life generally. So I do breathe better now, and I do do take in deep breaths if I'm feeling like anxiety is rising, whatever circumstance I'm in. Um, so yeah, I definitely think my meditation helps in all realms and, and, and absolutely in the car as well. It's one of those things with traffic, isn't it? Where you kind of see people getting so wound up and you sort of think to yourself, do you know what? There's nothing you can do about it. So why, no. why are you so angry? Literally nothing you can do apart from control yeah. your own reaction. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, and, and people, I guess that do that probably do that in, in other areas as well so it's like a bigger picture to look at for sure There'll be... sometimes just purely getting in the car can can get you all riled up you know and i totally understand it but but you know but there's a difference between having your own personal anxiety about traffic and actually bullying somebody else on the road it's two completely different things yeah i mean it's, it's just not right and it's, it's one of those things i mean we we kind of seeing behaviors on the motorway etc we, we we've we know that the police are doing an awful lot to change that as well. Middle lane hoggers, as they're called these days, and so on. You know, new penalties are coming in. And obviously there was that wave uh, over the over recent years about people using their mobile phones, and that's been properly clamped down on. So you would hope that this becomes, uh, you know, a very keen trend that just is adopted by all in the, in the same way that we all know, put your phone away when you're driving now, etc. You know, you would hope that people know if you spot this T-plate, just back off, you know. Just take a chill pill. Yeah, I, I, but I don't know any. I don't know anybody that wouldn't really. I mean, we've all seen it when somebody's got a learner sticker on, or you know, just pass sticker on. You automatically know that that person is potentially vulnerable. Therefore, you would just leave them alone. I mean, if you're any decent human being, you would. I had a situation just yesterday, Mel, where I could see about thirty cars in front. We were going very slowly. It was somewhere in Manchester, about 30 cars in front, there was a massive great big tractor. And it was funny, if I hadn't spotted the tractor, I probably would have been like, what on earth's going on? But just seeing the tractor yeah. gave me that great sense of calm. Because there's, there's no way 30 of us are getting past the tractor, you know? So there's he's setting the speed. <laughs> that's how it is. And I would hope that that's, yeah. you know, when people see these new T-plates and know that the black box is fitted in with these youngsters in their cars, etc., I would hope that's the kind of groove they can get in their head. They kind of just imagine you're behind well, a tractor. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, it's launched today. They will see how it goes. I know that co-op are contacting other insurers and getting them on board and getting them interested in also 
giving key plates out to their drivers as well. And hopefully it'll just become a regular thing that we all see and we all understand it and we all behave ourselves. Too right. Absolutely. And the other nice thing as well is it's a flip side for the youngsters, isn't it? Because some people think, you know, you just got your license. You're going to drive like a bit of a sod. But actually... Yeah, it's the flip side, isn't it? They're actually quite nervous. They don't want to be driving crazy. Yeah, and, and driving irresponsibly isn't exclusive to the young, is it? No. <laughs> you know, if you if you like driving fast, you like driving fast. So yeah, it's nice that for a change, um, it's about the young being sensible, or you know, and, and it's showing that they they want to drive sensibly, but they've been bullied out of that. I would thoroughly like recommend that anyone likes driving fast goes and gets themselves a track day. Get it out of your system. Go on a racetrack where you can hire a racetrack for a bit. You know, go and spend a few hours pulling oh, yeah. around as fast. As you... Have you ever done that, Mel? Have you ever done a, a track day before? I haven't. I've been. It, I've been in the car with Tiff Nadell in a rally <laughs> car on one of those things, and <laughs> oh, I literally screamed. Oh. It was awful. It was absolutely awful. Never ever again. I screamed for the entire time I was in the car. <laughs> Do you know, I spoke to Tiff awful. recently. He still does these hot laps down at Thruxton, I think it is. And I spoke to him recently and he was really nervous about doing them again because he has to do it with a face mask now. And he's like, Andy, I get really hot and sweaty and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to my passenger <laughs> the whole time. And he was worried about, you know, wearing a visor and a mask. And he was, he was anxious that it was just going to exhaust him. And you kind of, kind of would, wouldn't it? With your, you know, with your helmet on and you're absolutely flying yeah. down the racetrack. I, yeah, I, I wouldn't Absolutely. want to Absolutely, he'd have to do some practice runs on his own first, I guess. Yeah, yeah, although oh, he might be feeling a bit sick. But no, I'm with you, I hate a hot lap. I'd love to be the driver on a racetrack, hate to be the passenger. I, why did you put yourself through that? No, because, because it's an experience, and it was, and it was great, and it was fun. I mean, I screamed as much as I laughed, you know what I mean? But yeah. it's, it's done now. And also, I'm not being funny, if you're going to do it with anybody, you do it with Tiff Nadell. You do. Yeah, to be fair, especially because you trust him, but you're, to still, be fair. you're still terrified. I love it. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're not going to die in that moment. Mel, you know, I know, <laughs> I know we're really tight on time. So it's just just the last question for you, if that's all right. And, it, and, it, and it's about the, the title of yeah. our show, which is Driven. You know, you've achieved so much in your career. You've had a phenomenal career and, mm. and everything you touch, as far as I can see, turns to gold. What is it that kind of keeps you going? What is it that motivates you, gets you up in the morning and, and kind of gives you that spring in your step to kind of keep going and keep achieving? Um, well, to be honest, it's the mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm only, I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I mean, the, the thing is, you say everything I touch turns to gold and it's not necessarily true. It's just that I know what to say yes to. I say no to a lot of things because... I don't want to stick my name on everything. I don't want to be at the opening of an envelope. I don't want to do every show that comes my way because I am extremely authentic. I have no poker face. If I do not believe in what I'm doing, you will see it, and nobody wants to watch that. So I do think, for example, getting involved with a tea plate, I absolutely believe it to be a really important push, um, not, not least because I'm a parent, not least because my son's about to drive and I want to protect him. But it goes into all sorts of realms of my work. So I guess, thank you for saying that, but I think I make the right choices for me as a human being, and I think that shows. And that's it, really, darling. I mean, that really feels like the secret to my longevity is that I only do things I absolutely believe in. And I think it really is true for most people. It, it, I think things turn out well when you know exactly what it is that you're good at. That's really sage advice. You've thought this through. I love it. Thank you very much. So I'm not going to. Well, risk... I mean, it's just yeah, yes. 
Yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I'm not going to risk asking you to my fantasy dinner party then, just in case you say no. You might say no. I don't like Eddie Murphy. Not interested. You know, in which case we, we <laughs> yeah, won't I risk it. Yeah, I want to know who's on the list. <laughs> yeah, I want to know who's on the list first. It's pretty cool. Chris Pratt, Eddie Murphy, Harrison Ford, Liz Hurley, you, Margot Robbie, Sharon Hall. Oh, and I'd love to. I'd love to go to dinner to dinner party that Liz Hurley's at for sure. I love Liz. I've only met her once. I really dig her. So yeah, okay, I'm in. Hey, now that's a win. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think I'd get a yes to a dinner date with Melanie Sykes. It's kind of a fantasy one, but we're there anyway. Um, Mel, thank you so much for your company today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've been inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. You take care, Mel. That's really cool of you to chat to us. You too. Brilliant. All the very All right, best. Great stuff. Thank Thanks you. A lot. Take care. Coming up next on Driven, I'm thrilled to say, superstar actor, Mr. Daniel Mays. It's Driven here on Talk Radio with me, Andy J. Now, I am so pleased to be able to chat to my next guest, a man who, if you look at his acting CV, it is perversely long. I mean, star of everything you can imagine, stage, television and film. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, and I can tell you, he's also one of the greatest dancers on the planet. It is the magnificent Mr. Daniel Mays. How are you doing, Danny? Hi, Andy. How are you? Yes, I can throw some shapes, mate. Don't worry about that. (laughs) You can more than throw some shapes. I mean, I've got to say, Danny, I have, and I would recommend this to everybody that's listening right now, they need to check out Daniel May's Plus One Dance Moves. (laughs) Yeah, you're bringing bringing those memories back to me now. That was it, yeah. (laughs) I mean, some of the greatest moves I've ever seen. You know, you really bust yeah. out the dance floor and it's got such a hilarious payoff as well. It has with the famous uh, Jamelia. Yeah, I'm not sure I could I, I'm not sure I could break out those moves now. I'm a little bit older. I'm going back a few years with plus one. But no, that was a, that was the hilarious sequence. <laughs> but yeah, that was a great show plus one i love doing that show it was great fun i mean i I wasn't even going to bring it up and then i just thought to myself well i've started on the dance moves let's (laughs) let's keep going down it you say you can't bust the moves anymore danny but i so we're going to talk about in a few moments we're going to talk about des this incredible new drama that you're in with david tennant etc and yeah i was privileged amazingly enough to be in it myself We'll, we'll get onto that shortly but at the um, at the sort of the, the brief after party that they held in Islington, they showed us a short trailer. Do you remember? It was, a, it was about eight minutes of features and it, kind of behind the scenes footage. There's a heck of a lot of you dancing. Yeah, you're revealing all of my secrets now, aren't you? The thing about <laughs> film sets, the thing about film sets and TV sets, it, you know, it's long, long hours. You know, there's lots of hanging around. And I don't know what it is, particularly with something like, you know, if it's a heavy subject matter, obviously like Des is, some, sometimes you have to bring a, a certain amount of level, level to, to, the, to the set. You know, it's, it's, and I'm always about that, really. And uh, particularly with all the actors that played the policeman in, in the, the Des drama, we were, we were, we bonded very much. And, um, you know, so there was, I'm not saying that we were laughing and joking around all the time, because obviously when you're concentrated, you have to be, but you certainly have to have, um, bring a levity to it without question, I think. You, I mean, you're right. I, I'm fortunate enough, having had a tiny, tiny part in it myself, I can obviously attest to the fact that it was such a joyful thing to be part of because everyone was just lovely and I imagine I mean I've never acted before so it's not it's not something I have any intel on at all so I've only the one experience yeah. acting and it was this and therefore my experience is acting is amazing but you know the, the the lovely thing about it was as you said it was seriously hard hitting I mean just just to sort of outline the plot for the listeners 
David Tennant plays Dennis Nilsson, the, the the notorious serial killer, and you, yeah. play, you play Detective Inspector Peter Jay, who who wants to take him to task. Yeah, I play Peter Jay, who was the detective responsible for his conviction. You know, it's mm. a true story. It was an amazing opportunity, really, to delve beneath the headlines. And, you know, it was a hugely controversial moment in British uh, criminal history. Uh, and um, it's very much told... I mean, there's no point in just sort of going ahead and telling, you know, this side of the story just purely from Dennis Nilsson's point of view. This drama is very much approached from the policeman's point of view and indeed Brian Masters who was Dennis Nilsson's biographer who wrote the brilliant book Killing for Company so it's very much uh, told from that perspective and by doing that it it, it sort of highlights a lot more uh, elements to this case there's lots of preconceived ideas about the Nilsson case you know and, and we are we put it all up on there on the screen and allow the audience to make their own judgments it's not gratuitous it's not bloody or, or violent it's much more of a psychological take on things um and at the end of the day it offered an amazing acting opportunity to act across from david tennant who is you know one of the best actors this country's ever produced and indeed jason watkins as well who's equally as spellbinding as brian masters so um, and the great thing about it is all three of those characters are vastly different from one another. So um, it was an absolute pleasure to work on. It was superbly directed by Lewis Arnold, our director, yeah. uh, Luke Neal, first-time writer. It's it's a real sort of heavyweight, um, controversial piece, but nevertheless one of the most compelling dramas I think I've been involved in. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, absolutely, mate. I mean, it was it was incredible just to sort of be a tiny part of it. I can't wait to see the series properly. You know, it's three episodes a- across three nights. And I think it's I think it's going to be huge. I mean, I remember when I when I first arrived because amazingly, I only thought I had one line in it. So this is the weirdest thing. Yeah. In fact, in fact, Danny, you're one of the reasons why I got so confused to start with. I mean, I was basically asked to be in it very briefly, and I thought I was just going to do one one line. And you know what it's like. Well, you probably don't know. Yeah. I imagine you get sent the whole thing. But but for me, I yeah. was I was sent about eight pages of script because that was what they were filming that day. And so I was sent eight <laughs> pages of script. And obviously, my surname's Jay. So you were playing the character of Peter Jay. <laughs> and I looked at this thing yeah. and I thought, well, how much am I in this thing? I thought I had one line. There's all this dialogue, and I'm like, what have I got? And I'm like, I've never learned lines in my life. I mean, that's not what I do. So I'm just like, what on earth am I doing? And I call up the casting director, and he's like. Let me look into that for you. You know, it's like, like yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Really humoured me, bless him. And then he calls back and goes, "Yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that's not your character. Don't worry." However, there has been a rewrite, and I was like, "Oh, oh, okay." okay. So there's been a rewrite. So that the script that I had been sent had one for for my role. It did have one or two lines. I mean, nothing difficult. You know, you could remember them just by looking at them once and then looking up at the camera, right? Not not hard. Yeah, the script, yeah. The script I then got sent had a monologue for me. I mean, it was like four pages of dialogue, and I've never learned in my life. I've seen you in the finished article. It's, you're absolutely brilliant. You, you carry <laughs> off that sort of newsreader correspondent to a T. You know, may, maybe you could have played my character for your day's filming, and I, w- I wouldn't have to learn so many of my lines. So, uh, 
You could have thrown me a bone there, Andy. Do you know what I mean? You could have made my life a little bit easier. I don't know how you do it, mate. I, I didn't sleep for trying to remember these lines. I wrote them down a thousand <laughs> times. I put them as voice notes in my phone. Well, you know, the car came to collect me in the morning. I couldn't speak to the driver other than hello because I was just lying. Oh, God. Lines. I, oh, I was so terrified, Danny. I could, I'd oh, never God, you're making... You're making me feel even nervous about it now. Um, but no, you you did it brilliantly. You know, I mean, line learning is one of those things that it is a muscle that you use as an actor. I think it it's something you, that you tune into, and I think it gets perhaps it gets easier as you get older, and or, or it, it certainly becomes less worrying. I have been on stage and completely dried. That that was I've only ever dried once on stage, and and that was at the National Theatre, and it was. Ooh. That was an absolutely horrendous experience to go through purely because I was the only actor on stage and it was the opening of the second act. But anyway, that's another story. You don't want to hear these horror stories. No, it's horrible. I it's, do. Horrible. It's, it's amazing. I mean, what did you, I mean, at that level, because at school plays, obviously, yeah. you know, you've got the teacher yeah. with the script and she's ready, you know, she's basically reading the whole thing for every single kid, you know, because they're like, oh. yeah. I mean, is it, what happens at the National? Do they have no, what, something what, what, what happened with that incident was um, I always say to the stage manager, um, <laughs> shows you uh, where my head's at, but I always say, look, if there's anyone of any, look, every member of the audience is significant, but I say, have you, are there any faces in the auditorium? Are, are, is anyone in today? And, uh, and she said, oh, do you want me to tell you? Because some actors hate that, you know, and I'm like, no, yeah, just, you know, you know, just, 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 whispering me in and she said and I was getting ready in the inter in the interval and as I said I was the first character to come on stage on my own and um Joni uh, the stage manager said oh, I'll guess who's in this afternoon it was a matinee that was it and um she said uh Danny Boyle's in the the, the film oh, director no. Danny Boyle and I was like oh my god oh. and then and then I jump and I jump on stage and the opening line was the opening line of dialogue was Mac it's Jim it was in a play called The Red Lion, written by Patrick Marber. And um, I've got a hat on and a Mac, and, and they pour a load of water over me, so it's raining outside. I literally come on, the lights come up, and I just completely drive. I completely, I couldn't remember what that particular line of dialogue was. And then I thought, oh, hold on, it'll come to me. And then it didn't. And then I started pacing up and down. And then the only thing I could think of was Daddy Boyle, Daddy Boyle, Daddy Boyle. Was he going to think? And I somehow managed. To, I remembered the intonation of the line, but not the actual words themselves. So I just muttered something, and all of a sudden it came into my head, and I, I was able to carry on. Wow! It felt like it felt like an eternity, but um, you know, I guess the audience never know really if those things go disastrously wrong. They just uh, go with it, whatever. Not unless they've watched it every night, you know. They're, they're no, exactly. Night. Yeah, you do get some people that are in every night. Yeah. And then, then they just think you were trying something new, Danny. And they just be like, oh, what's he doing here then? You know. Yeah, but it's really weird, though. When that, I mean, you kind of think, do I wait for a prompt? Do I go off? Do I start again? Um, yeah, I don't really want to experience that again. <laughs> it's, 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 easy on, it's easy on film and TV. You know, you just you, you call cut and you go again. You know, the real, that's why, you know, I always advise any actor to go and do theatre because it is the actor's medium. You're asked to perform over the course of an evening and there's no director there to shout cut. You are in charge of the reins and it's a great, um, you know, theatre is, is an acting muscle that you should always, I always try and go, I've done a play in like four years, so um, I'd love to go back and do another one because, because especially after lockdown, we've been, I know our theatres aren't up and running yet, but 
hopefully by next year everything will change and I think um just for my own self I just think I I um would like to go and do that yeah absolutely well you were amazing in mojo you know Jez Butterworth's debut you were absolutely incredible in that oh game, it was so. great yeah one of the one of the highlights of my career particularly probably the most if not yeah the most enjoyable play I've ever been in that was um you know you work on a, a text from Jez Butterworth it's just and that play is like it's just electric every night I relished every performance and I was I was I was the only one of those actors that didn't have a franchise. You had Ben Whishaw, who <laughs> was in James Bond, and yeah. Rupert Grint, Harry, Harry Potter, Potter, and Delta, and and um, you had Merlin there, and I, I was just and what was amazing about Mojo was that um, yeah, with their franchises, they had really crazy fans. I mean, they were really there were people that came to see that show every night, and. Um, they would wait in the stage door. I mean, at one stage, they even tried to smash the glass, the windows at the back of the theatre to try. It. Yeah, yeah, it was all a bit. It was all a bit. It was a bit of an eye opener, anyway. It was like being in a a rock band, really. <laughs> that um, that ensemble of actors, but yeah, great, an, an amazing experience, and brilliantly directed by Ian Rickson. I mean, you, you talk about kind of the, the pressure of, of kind of doing it in front of an audience. But, you know, when I look at the, I mean, obviously, Danny, your, your CV is unbelievable. But but there are sort of things that stand out on anyone's CV. Working with Steven Spielberg, working with Sam Mendes. I mean, these are pretty huge things, aren't they? You know, I mean, yeah. how do you, I mean, you, you talk about almost, almost corpsing in, in front of Danny Boyle. But, I mean, how, yeah. did, how did you get your first line out? In front of Sam Mendes or Steve or, or Spielberg, you know, nineteen seventeen, Tintin. I mean, these are these are huge. Yeah, things. that I mean, that was uh, the 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 Tintin experience was incredible. But I mean, it was you know, I'd never worked in LA before, and it was it was all shot on motion capture. I, I, this is a great example for any aspiring actors out there. I do remember going to do the self tape at Gina Jay's, the casting director down in Twickenham. And lots of times for actors, you do lots of self-tapes and you, you edit the thing, you film it, you edit it, you, you hit send, it goes off into the ether and you never hear anything of it. And I do remember uh, having that audition come in and I was driving down to Twickenham with my wife, Lou, and I was a bit grumpy and I was like, I just, you know, this is a, such a waste of time. I haven't got the last 10, 15 self-tapes that I've gone in for. Why are we bothering with this? And and she went, oh, of course, you know, and she spurred me on. And I went in and I self-taped and didn't think anything of it. And then literally the call came in and said, listen, Danny, he's seen your tape. No. You get a call from your agent saying, uh, Steven Spielberg loves your tape, Danny. It's between you and a much older actor. So it's, it, he's either going to go old or he's going to go young, but you're down to the last two. And you go, wow. And then the gods were on my side and luckily I got the gig. And it was, it was... You know, I took my wife, my young son at the time. We all went out to L.A. It was all motion capture. It was Simon Pegg, Nick Frost, Andy Serkis was yeah. Captain Haddock, Jamie yeah. Bell. It was just, it was just um, kind of otherworldly, you know. And then I, I never forget that first day. I hadn't uh, even met Spielberg yet, and I was all in there. The thing is, when you do motion capture in these funny sort of all-in-one wetsuits <laughs> with these funny dots all over your face and your body and you're rommed into the computer, but um, I do remember him coming out of the office with like a kind of entourage around him, and he suddenly walks up to you and introduces himself, and, and he had this sort of 
you know, aura about him. Of course he did. He was Steven Spielberg. Yeah. But you try and you just try and style it out. And you, <laughs> as much as anything, you kind of go, yes, he loves you, Danny. You're here on merit and go and do your job. And and he was great. He was really personable. I just remember him being so inventive and creating all these brilliant ideas in the moment. And it was just, I just relished every uh, second of it. It was a great adventure. That's so cool, man. I mean, that must have, that must have been incredible. Uh, I, I mean, I've mentioned 1917 as well, which I, I, I mean, it's, yeah. it's in my head because I've watched it quite recently. You know, everyone knows that the, the kind of lengths that that was, that was filmed in, you know, with the, the one shot, the huge lengths of trench, etc. Yes. You know, yeah. we, we meet you in the trenches, thick in the trenches, quite early into the film. You know, yeah. I mean, just being there must have been kind of otherworldly as well, was it? Yeah, the, what's strange about 1917 is that um, I was in another movie called Atonement, which was directed by the brilliant Joe Wright. Is that so, the Kira Knightley one, wasn't it? The Kira Knightley, James McAvoy. It's a wonderful film. And I don't know if you remember the moment when we sort of land in Dunkirk, but there's a huge Steadicam shot in the middle of, of that film. And it was like, for that particular film, it was like four or five pages of stage direction. And Joe Wright decided to do it in one Steadicam shot. So it's just, I mean, everyone talks about 1917. And I weirdly, I felt like I had some... Well, I did. I had an experience of doing a very long steadicam shot in a war film. But, you know, that was the Second World War, and obviously 1917 was the First World War. So I've ticked both those those world wars. That's but it. it was the great... I mean, it, when you're in a long shot like that, um, in a way, it's so immersive. It's It feels like a, um, a theatre piece all in itself. There's everywhere you look. I mean, you know, for 1917, there were hundreds of extras. Yeah. And so um, when you're in there and you're filming and every, uh, you kind of every angle you look at, there's like supporting artists and the set is second to none. I mean, literally they dug a whole First World War trench system for us to walk through. And um, But with that comes a lot of pressure because, you know, if you, if you look down the lens or you screw your lines up or you, you take a tumble, which a couple of times the, the cameraman for, uh, did you know it was it was i mean mighty 17 more than anything was this amazing technical achievement and when you're in there in that moment seeing the crane actually being lifted the camera being lifted off the crane and then it going into handheld and then you know technicians breaking their backs to try and get it around nooks and crannies and it was just a kind of amazing um and fulfilling experience and Again, you know, a director as, as amazing as Sam Mendes makes you feel completely part of the action. You know, I, had a, I essentially I had a small supporting role, just like Benedict Cumberbatch and Mark Strong and yeah. Andrew Scott. You know, the two young actors are, were the leads. But um, Sam Mendes was great because he invited me into his trailer. He wanted to meet me. Uh, and he spoke about the inspiration for the film, that it was loosely based on his granddad and who was in the First World War, who was a messenger. We spoke about the character. So any good director in a huge sort of blockbuster film like that, if they, what makes them brilliant is that they, they make you feel like you're a really key component yeah. in, 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 you know, a key can spoke in a huge will. But um, I definitely felt that from him. And, I mean, it's just the marriage of those two lead actors and the performances they give 
and the technical achievement of, of 1917 is, is absolutely staggering. And I mean, it was one of the most immersive films I've certainly sat through. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. I mean, Danny, just, just kind of hearing you talk about some of these anecdotes and, and you've got them for so many TV shows and films. Do you find yourself yeah. almost weekly pinching yourself? Yeah, there's, 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 there's frequently moments of, you know, uh, maybe I should put it, put it down in a book, shouldn't I? But you should. It would take a lot of writing, though, mate. You know, just I mean, just to just basically to reel off the TV shows you've been in. That's about two hundred pages. <laughs> you know, that's without a sentence on each. That's just the titles of the shows. Yeah, I mean, I, I I'm I'm very I feel like I'm very much you know um, as an actor you have to have forward momentum. Really, I'm I'm not one to. <clears throat> quite kind of like dwell on the past and and i'm always i have a great feeling of whenever you get a new character and a new new role you have to wipe the slate clean and come at it afresh and i think that's a really healthy way of looking at it you know you are only as good as your last job so it keeps you on your toes you know i'm very much about wanting to try new characters and not you know repeat myself and um and that's tough you know you can kind of get um to a certain degree you can get typecast or stuck in a certain box really and and you know that's all well and good you know when you first come out of drama school i think you know you have to find a footing and a, and a foundation somewhere but if you're lucky enough to have longevity in this industry that's when it can then open up and you know you forge relationships with casting directors and producers and especially directors that want to you know continue the working relationship and go well we've tried this Danny. what about that you know so it's um um, I think if you stay in it long enough, then hopefully the different opportunities will arise, and then you can you can grow as an actor because that's the great thing about my profession. It's like you know, it's a, such a in a way, it's quite a mysterious thing to be, isn't it? Because you never know what jobs around the corner. And as I've said, you can have longevity, but you can get you know like this. You can just grow into it. You can go deeper and deeper into the mindset of what an actor is and what it is we can all achieve. So. Um, it's never ending, really. It's a sort of puzzle which is you're always trying to figure out. How do you stay kind of um, detached from the character, Danny? It's probably a question you've been asked a few times, but just kind of, would, uh, for example, you know, Danny Waldron, Sergeant Danny Waldron, who you played in Line of Duty, you were nominated for BAFTA yeah. for it. You know, that is a, a tough, you know, I imagine just reading his character arc on, on, on the page must have been a bit horrible already. And then thinking, I've got to <laughs> occupy this guy for a few weeks how do you kind of yeah. keep yourself away from falling down the rabbit hole of horror that is, you know, th th these kind of terrible kind of backstories that these characters have had? Yeah, I was very lucky enough uh, to work with Mike Lee, who's uh, an amazing um, British filmmaker. Yeah. You, uh, I, I, I was lucky enough to get a film called Out of Drama School, and then straight after that I was in his next film called Vera Drake, which was a commercial smash hit with an Elder Staunton. And, you know, I did three years at RADA, but the sort of two films that I made with Mike very early on were probably the best uh, education a young actor could ever hope for. And the, the key component, I mean, there's lots of amazing and uh, worthwhile and um, methods to how Mike works, but one of the key components with Mike was always remember that you are the actor and there's the character and they're, they're two separate things. Right. So I'm not, a I'm not a method actor. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not a Daniel Day-Lewis where I'm going to go 
and live in the woods for however long or you know you don't need my, you don't need my milkshake that's what you're saying you're not interested. no no I, if i'm doing a dialect if i'm doing an accent i won't walk around the set you know talking in that dialect it's just not how i work but i think you know i'm always a great believer in if you're talking about line of duty and we talk about that interrogation scene you know i mean that in itself was the hardest passage of dialogue i've ever had to learn but you have to um, do all your homework, do all your pre preparation and be able to come to the set with the lines fully learned and then and you can deliver the performance. You can be in the moment and be instinctive and if some, an idea comes to you in the moment, you can go with it. But by being separate from the character, it's like as a, it's kind of like having a director's third eye on it. It's like an antennae. Where you can, when you're in the moment, you can make those choices. Do you know what I mean? If, I, yeah. if I'm if I'm playing a drug addict, drug addict, I'm not going to take heroin. If I'm if I'm an alcoholic, I'm not going to turn up to set drunk. You know, some actors try to do that, but the that fact of the matter is, you've got to go over that scene again and again. You've got to repeat the thing, yeah. and it's like you've got to. I mean, that's what makes great actors great actors is that they. You know they're able to sort of choose and you know what choices you make in the moment, and it's about having technique. I mean that's what it is. You know you have a um, you have to be masters of your technique in order to choose the, the sort of impulse or whatever it is you want to play in the moment. It's no uh, it's no Nicolas Cage in Leaving Las Vegas type thing for you then. No, but I mean, I'm not. I'm not criticised. Want to go down that method? Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah, not. Yeah, I, yeah. I think it's whatever. I mean, I've worked with certain actors that are so kind of engrossed in it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I mean, if I'm doing an emotional scene, I will use invariably. I'll be in the corner of the set, listening to music, doing emotional memory, and doing all that Stanislavski technique that I learned way back when at drama school, and all that's ingrained in, in me. You know, but. But there might be another actor which is who's going around swearing at everyone and smashing things up. That's fine. Do you know what I mean? What, I, whatever an actor needs to to get them to the right place, then that's great. You know, and I think you have to be receptive and respectful as to how anyone uh, approaches their craft, really. Um, and it's all each to their own. No, it makes a lot of sense. Danny, I, I want to talk to you about a couple of other shows. I know we've we got kind of tight on time now. You know, the Kemp's is one yeah. that we've got to get to. But but just before we do, <laughs> have, how often do you Google yourself? Because there's a question that, that this follows on to. Um, not all the time. I, I mean, I, I, I'd be lying if I said I'd never Googled myself, <laughs> you know. Um, I mean, I'm on social media now. I'm on, I'm on Instagram now as well as Twitter. So it's sort of, I mean, those sort of, that that element of selling yourself and just getting your face out there is something I've definitely um, become more familiar. All right, well, 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 Danny, here's something for you. When you put your name in, you don't, you're not going to tell me how many times I've googled myself, have you? I am actually. No, no. Oh, you are. No, it's, <laughs> there's a thing that you know. You know, it fills in when you put anything into Google. When you put the first word in, then it auto fills the next most popular bit of the sentence. Right? You know, you know that. That's just a standard thing with Google, right? Well, yeah. there's this. I I have to bring it up because I think it's remarkable, especially if it's true. There's right, da on. Daniel May's net worth, right? According, oh, to, yeah, according yeah. to Google, you are worth $102 million. 
<laughs> Google needs to have a long, long, hard look at themselves. <laughs> I, I bloody well wish I was worth that. Certainly, that is not the case. But, Daddy, it, get, it gets even better, right? It doesn't just say oh, you're okay, worth $102 million. It says there's a little subheading got- underneath that that says he earned his cash being, and this is a direct quote, an expert TV actor. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> That's the job description right there. It's perfect, isn't it's it? It's mad, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it's perfect, but I can't. I'm still staggered by they would come up with that figure. Net worth 102 it's, million. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood Hills and all of that as well. It's a beautiful thing. And I drive a Ferrari. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I, it's, I all, know... it's all it's all work in progress, Andy. You know. Well, hey, listen. You know, let's prove Google right. To be fair, you know. This... <laughs> It's the next yeah. step. It's always worth having somebody to achieve, isn't it? And to be fair, when it you is. look at your amazing... I mean, I just... I still can't get over how incredible your CV is. It's amazing. Temple's back really soon. That's a brilliant drama. Good Omens was great fun. White Lines have stopped, which is a massive shame because that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Code yeah, we're all we're all guided about that. Yeah, Code 4 I'm filming the second series of that at the moment, so that's going to come back. It's all yeah. happening. <laughs> brilliant. And then, of course, there was The Kemp's All True, which if, if you haven't yes. seen it... It's, a, it's an incredible piece of television. And please tell me there's going to be more of those. Um, I, I don't know. I think, I mean, I think it did really well, didn't it? It did. Um, it did. I, uh, I'd met, um, I was a huge fan of the craze film that the Kemp brothers made. That When yeah. I was younger, starting out and getting into acting, that was a film that I really latched onto. And then uh, Gary Kemp came to see me at the National, that play where I dried, that I spoke about earlier. <laughs> and I, and he, I just literally met him for a, a drink after the play. And then this offer just came in, and I just thought it was such a... I'm always... I love watching actors play actors on anything. I mean, I'm watching the brilliant Billy Piper at the moment in... Oh, yeah. You know, I hate Susie. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that on Sky. It's incredible. It's just a ph- incredible. Phenomenal piece of work, and she's she's tremendous in it. Um, but it was just a great opportunity for Danny Mays to play Danny Mays and to send himself up. And I think, <laughs> you know, it was such a funny idea to this sort of gangster uh, uh, read-through that they came up with. And I, I think I, I, they were great guys and lovely to hang out with, and I love the way that they set themselves up. It was It was a joy to do. That was so much fun to watch as well. That's why I wanted to be more because it was just there's so much. Yeah, no, I think they're they're so good at it. I think it definitely has potential. And and Reese Thomas, who made it, I think you know it's crying out for another uh, episode at least. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, I mean, Danny, you've been in everything. You've acted with everyone. You've you've acted for the best. You know, (laughs) Des Des is coming out in in a couple of days. It's I think it's going to really hit the ground running. I think people are going to be. I think they'll consider it to be a remarkable piece of television. Just kind of how does it sort of sit with you in terms of the projects that you've done? Because you've done so many amazing things. How how kind of proud are you of Des, as it were? Oh, I'm really proud of it. I think it's it's right up there, you know. I mean, when you get offered something like this, and, you know, I was aware of Dennis Nilsson. I lived in and around that area of Cranley Gardens. Um, you know, it's such an infamous case. Um, when you when you know that that's the subject matter and then you get, you know, David Tennant and Jason Watkins and not just those guys, a whole 
amazing ensemble of actors, uh, of, of people who are good friends of mine. And I've worked with before, like Ron Cook and Jay Simpson and Barry Ward and mm. Ben Bailey Smith. It's just a great ensemble. And, um, and when you realise that Des actually has taken five years to come to the screen, I mean, it's taken that long, uh, it, it sort of offers, artistically, it offers a golden opportunity to create a really compelling and, mean, and meaningful piece of drama. And I think um, they've definitely done that. You know, it's, it's, I would put it right up there with the line of duties and the red ridings and the shifties and all those things that I'm really proud of. So um, I just, you know, the, the, the last component, you just give it over to the audience and uh, allow them to watch it, really. So we're, we're very excited about it being released. Absolutely, mate. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, just just to be a tiny, tiny part of it has had me buzzing for months. So, you know. and you've stolen the show, Andy. You've stolen <laughs> everybody else's thunder. What yeah. can I say? It's, it's true. You'll I'll... be you'll be offered news correspondence to the cows come home now, <laughs> and I won't take any of them, mate. I'm never going to learn lines <laughs> again. I hated that. I love being in it. I hated learning yeah. lines. I do not know hate it. My job is about coming up with things on a fly. You know, I can do that well occasionally. But, yeah. But no, I mean, having to learn, oh dear, no. <laughs> Chills, I'll mate. i put you off my life. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't, but you know, no. any any script, I'm just like, oh, no, <laughs> you're all good. But no, it'd be, listen, Danny, it's been an absolute joy talking to you. What what a pleasure. I mean, I've seen a few bits, a few, a few sneaky peeks of Des, and you are sensational in it. I mean, you know. Oh, you, thank you very much. You bring that's, absolute that's very kind to the screen whenever you're on. So, you know, we just know that it's going to be phenomenal. But um I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you so much for your time today, Danny. It's, it's Absolute really pleasure, cool. Andy, and, and best of luck with all your news correspondence in the future. <laughs> well, I hope, we get, I hope we get to work together again soon. <laughs> I'm sure we will. But Talk no, great you. to chat with you. Yeah, Brilliant. cheers, Andy. Cheers, all the Danny. best. Take care, mate. All the very best. Thank you. Driven with Andy J. It's Driven here on Talk Radio. I'm Andy J. Now I'm thrilled to be able to welcome my next guest, a man who genuinely, when I mentioned I was getting to speak to him, everyone I've spoken to said, everybody loves Ben Fogel. Here he is. How are you doing, Ben? Everybody loves you. You're, what an introduction. You're making me blush now. <laughs> but it's true, Ben. You know, it's it's one of those things where you're a, you're a person who puts smiles on people's faces just by having your name said. Oh, honestly, that's made my day just hearing that. Well, do you know what? I've always lived my life very honestly. I've always been who I am, and I've never tried to be anyone else. I've always been very honest. And if there's a reason maybe why people like some of the things I've done, maybe it's because I've, I've just always worn my heart on my sleeve. I think, I think a lot of people maybe try to be what others want them to be rather than who they actually are. I know we're going to self-analysis now and I'm blushing, getting myself all in a pickle, just uh, <laughs> trying to describe myself. But I, I think I, I, in answer to your, to your very kind introduction, I think the key to life is just to be who you are, not what others want you to be. Yes, yes, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Ben, you and I are very close in age, but nonetheless, mm -hmm. you know, I, I've obviously been aware of you for, for a long, long time now, and I still have this mantra in my head, which is when I grow up, I want to be Ben Fogel. Wow. Yeah. I, I've been doing this for 20 years now. I sometimes wake up all creaky and, <laughs> and just think I, I think I think I might need to, uh, to, to start slowing down. And then I open the curtains and the 
rain is pouring or the sun is shining. I think, no, today is another day to carry on and do other exciting things. I want to talk to you about these amazing things that you do, you know, because you have achieved so much. But, you, you know, the show title of this show is Driven, and it is about what drives people. And, and looking at the list of your achievements, some of which, I mean, I had actually forgotten some of the things you've done because you've done so much. You know, when you do wake up in the morning, what is it that, that gets you to jump out of bed and go, today I'm going to, boom, do this? I think it's just about making the most of life. I think it's very easy to sleepwalk through life and just look at the negatives. I think there are a lot of people who are kind of downward looking. And, and I realize there are many, many different reasons that, that, that lead to that. But I've always tried to live every day as if it's my last. I know that sounds like a cliche, but to, to, to add life to my days rather than days to my life has, has always been a driving, motivating force for me. And, and I've been very lucky that from the very first sort of big challenge that I had, which was 20 years ago when I went to live on an island for a year in the Western Isles of Tom, TV show, from then opportunities have arisen but it's not just i don't just sit there and wait for things to come to me i've I've always been super proactive i'm an avid reader i like to meet people i listen and and i collect i collect kind of ideas and thoughts and ambitions and hopes and dreams of other people and kind of absorb them and and i think that's what, what, what so when i wake up and you know you're not really feeling like going out for a run or you're not really feeling like a long day of work I just I kind of see through that and and I don't I don't lament it and I don't I don't see it as a burden I kind of see it as an exciting challenge and and once you start to to flip that on its head I think that's how you turn pessimism into into positivity and optimism and that's why I keep challenging myself and taking myself out of my comfort zone because it's very easy once you're in a comfy place and I, I've got a, you know I've been for 120 days with my family in our rural home growing a veg patch I could just sit here I, I quite honestly I could spend the rest of my life just doing it. but then I kind of think but at what cost to the other experiences I could be having. And I think that's how we wean ourselves in and out of different experiences. And, and that, if, if in a long-winded way, if that, that, that may explain how I'm driven. Yes, no, that's a really, really interesting analysis, Ben. And, and, and actually, of course, the other reason why you couldn't just stay there is your kids will get old and get bored and want to leave, and then what are you left with? Some vegetables. Well, exactly. you know? well, well there, there you go. And, and, and all of these experiences and the things we do are a, a sum of their parts. So it, it's oh, the famous old adage to not necessarily revisit places that meant a huge amount to you when you were a child. I think, you know, right back to school, if you enjoyed school, you'll know that when you go back to revisit it and it doesn't have the same teachers and the same people and the same desks with the same scrolls on them, it's just not quite the same. Yeah. It doesn't have the same feeling as it had. And for me, the same goes for expeditions. I've been to climb mountains that I had climbed in the past or I've been uh, to countries and revisited exactly the same uh, remote uh, areas, but they're never quite the same without the people I was with all the time in my life that, that I was there. Yes, of course. Do you do you have down days, Ben? Because when you when, when you when you sort of look at your list of just quite frankly phenomenal superhuman achievements, you know, I sort of think, well, if I'm waking up with a bit of a headache and I'm you, I kind of go, ah, shut up, this isn't the Atlantic or Antarctica or whatever. I'm in my bed. I'm fine. No, in the in the spirit of honesty, of course, I have down days. I think everyone, it's human nature 
that occasionally, you know, the, the dark clouds loom. And I, I've always been very honest about that, that like everyone, um, uh, often instigated by nothing in particular, you, you can just feel a little bit down. You can feel sad. You can feel a bit under the weather, a bit depressed even. But it's about how you pull yourself out of that, how you how you see the sunshine through through the fog. And and I certainly experienced those, not not as prolifically as some people who, who really struggle um, through those dark dog days. I've always been able to kind of clear the mist, the fog around me. But but it certainly happens from time to time and I think it's human nature. And I think part of the, the, the human spirit is working your way through those. And and it's something that we should share together. I think post lockdown a lot of people have struggled with that period. A lot of people are going to struggle as we move ahead. Yes. And I think we as a nation owe it to one another to keep looking out for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family members as those dark clouds continue continue to gather. Yes, it's, it's going to be very strange to see how the dice roll, isn't it? We've, we've been dealt a hand that no one has ever expected or experienced before. And, and no one really knows what coming out the other side looks like yet. I, I think the... I, I think the the, the ramifications and the long-term effects are, are going to go on for a long time and many unexpected byproducts, both positive and negative, will come from this. But I think it's, it's, it's about now using this period as lockdown is gently easing. I, I hope it continues to do so. I think it's now about making the most of going ahead, the lessons that we've learned. Interestingly, I, I've been working with Arla, the dairy cooperative, who've just done a study on what people have really missed during lockdown. And 68% of people say it's the countryside, it's, it's rural Britain, it's access to those green spaces. And I was certainly one of those. I'd, I'd be one of those 68% of people. I found myself dreaming about the countryside. We had elements of it on our doorstep. So for, for that those short periods of exercise we were allowed each day, we, we were able to go for a family walk. But the coastline and the national parks and, and, and that true um, rural rolling hills that make this country so great uh, w w was in my dreams. And I think a lot of people have have realized what we have and what we took for granted. And, and I hope that changes people's overall attitudes and attitudes towards the flora and fauna and our natural landscape. Perhaps we will become a little bit kind of more sensitive to our consumption and, and our impact on the wider world. I mean, interestingly as well, you know, just, just to come back to this Arla study, they've also found that the vast majority of people in the UK have fallen in love with the smell of the countryside. And they've, they've done something about that, haven't they? This is quite fun, actually. So Arla have actually worked with a perfumery to come up with a bottled scent of the countryside, minus the muck, I hasten yeah, to add. Yeah. So they bottled it up, and uh, and and it's, I, I suppose this is just a way of showing people, showcasing what farmers are trying to do to be more more kind of uh, less impactful and, and more sensitive. So yes, so you can now buy the scent of the countryside in a little glass bottle with a diffuser stick, so that your house can also smell like rural Britain minus the muck. Ben, what's what's next for you? I know we've got very little time, but I just uh, it's always worth asking because I know lockdown and restrictions, etc., will limit certain projects. But I imagine you're a man with one eye on the next adventure. Of course, I mean international travel is obviously still very difficult right now. So most filming is taking place in the UK. So so I, I've just started slowly traveling around the UK again and actually I took the opportunity of lockdown to write uh, another book it's a reflection 
definitive book about all the things I was missing during lockdown and what I have learned over the years from the wilderness and what, what we can take from it. Brilliant. We look forward to that. You know, worst case scenario, Ben, if air traffic, you know, if you, if you can't fly, you've already rode the mm. Atlantic. You can always jump back in a boat, can't you? Well, there you go. I can always, there's always a way. Yeah. That's, that's the way I look at it. I can swim. Worst case scenario, I can swim home. That's it for another week of Driven here on Talk Radio. Don't forget, if you've missed anything or you'd like to catch up with our back catalogue of celebrity conversations, you can download the Driven Celebrities podcast. And if you're a petrol head, you might like to know that we play on the Driven theme and we have our own automotive skewing podcast as well called Driven Chat. Both Driven Celebrities and Driven Chat are available wherever you find your podcasts. Now, next week on the show, I'll be joined by acting royalty Celia Imre and two singers, Sophie Ellis-Bexter and Brian McFadden. All that and more on Driven with me, Andy J, here on Talk Radio.